You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, thank you for joining us for the Friday, May 12th, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, when should women get regular mammograms? At 40, U.S. panel now says, from the New York Times. Plus, the COVID public health emergency is over in the U.S. Here's what that means for you, from USA Today. Plus, pancreatic cancer vaccine shows promise in a small trial, from the New York Times. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. When should women get regular mammograms? At 40, U.S. panel now says. The new advice comes as breast cancer diagnoses rise among younger women and mortality rates among black women remain persistently high. By Roni Karen Rabin from The New York Times. Alarmed by an increase in breast cancer diagnoses among younger women and persistently high death rates among black women in particular, health experts this week offered a stark revision to the standard medical advice on mammograms. Women of all racial and ethnic backgrounds who are at average risk for breast cancer should start getting regular mammograms at age 40 instead of treating it as an individual decision until they are 50, as previously recommended, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force said. The group issues influential guidelines on preventive health, and its recommendations usually are widely adopted in the United States. But the new advice, issued as a draft, represents something of a reversal. In 2009, the task force raised the age for starting routine mammograms to 50 from 40. At the time, researchers were concerned that earlier screening would do more harm than good, leading to unnecessary treatment in younger women, including biopsies that turn out to be negative. But there have been troubling trends in breast cancer in recent years. They include an apparent increase in the number of cancers diagnosed in women under 50 and a failure to narrow the survival gap for younger black women who die of breast cancer at twice the rate of white women of the same age. We don't really know why there has been an increase in breast cancer among women in their 40s, Dr. Carol Mangione, immediate past chair of the task force, said in an interview. But when more people in a certain age group are getting a condition, then screening of that group is going to be more impactful, she said. The new recommendation covers more than 20 million women in the United States between the ages of 40 and 49. In 2019, about 60 percent of women in this age group said they had gotten a mammogram in the past two years, compared with 76 percent of women aged 50 to 64 and 78 percent of women aged 65 to 74. The panel has said there is insufficient evidence to make recommendations one way or the other for women who were 75 and older. Dr. Mangione said the task force had, for the first time, commissioned studies of breast cancer specifically among black women, as well as for all women, and needed more research into the factors driving the racial disparity. The task force also is calling for a clinical trial to compare the effectiveness of annual and biennial screening among black women. 
Overall, mortality from breast cancer has declined in recent years. Still, it remains the second most common cancer in women after skin cancer and is the second leading cause of cancer deaths after lung cancer among women in the United States. Breast cancer diagnoses among women in their 40s had been increasing at less than 1% between 2000 and 2015. But the rate rose by 2% a year on average between 2015 and 2019, the task force noted. The reasons are not entirely clear. Postponement of childbearing or not having children at all may be fueling the rise, said Rebecca Siegel, Senior Scientific Director of Surveillance Research at the American Cancer Society. Having children before age 35 reduces the risk of breast cancer, as does breastfeeding. Still, she noted, there is much year-to-year variation in the diagnosis rates. Other researchers suggest the increase among younger women may simply reflect more screening, said Dr. Stephen Woloshin, professor of medicine at Dartmouth College. Frequent screening can itself cause harm, leading to unnecessary biopsies that cause anxiety and treatment for slow-going cancers that would never have been life-threatening, researchers have found. Yet there was a firestorm of criticism in 2009 from both patients and advocacy groups when the task force advised that women start getting regular mammograms no later than age 50. Critics of that guidance feared that malignancies would be missed among younger women and suggested that a desire to cut health care costs drove the recommendation. At the time, the panel also called for longer intervals between mammograms, one every two years, rather than annual scans. That recommendation still stands. The American Cancer Society differs on this key point. Women aged 40 to 44 should be able to choose screening, the society says, but beginning at 45, women should get mammograms every year until age 55. The risk of fast-growing cancers is greatest before menopause. Karen E. Knudsen, chief executive officer of the Cancer Society, said she welcomed the task force's advice to begin routine screening at a younger age because it will alleviate confusion resulting from contradictory recommendations from medical groups. Still, she said, we are steadfast on annual screening. Cancers in premenopausal women grow faster, and it's important they don't develop during the two-year period and go undetected, she said. The task force's new recommendation applies to all people assigned female at birth who are asymptomatic and at average risk for breast cancer, including those with dense breast tissue and a family history of breast cancer. But the advice does not apply to anyone who has already had breast cancer, carries genetic mutations that increase her risk, has had breast lesions identified in previous biopsies, or has had high-dose radiation to the chest, which raises the risk of cancer. These women should consult with their doctors about how frequently to be screened. The task force emphasized that it was important for black women to start mammograms at age 40, as they are more likely to get aggressive tumors at a young age and 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women are. Some scientists have called for moving away from a universal, one-size-fits-all approach to screening in favor of a risk-adapted approach, which would mean screening black women six to eight years earlier than white women. 
The recommendation should be tailored by race and ethnicity to maximize the benefits of screening and minimize its harms and to address the current racial disparity, said Dr. Mahdi Fala, who studies risk-adapted cancer prevention at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg. But screening alone will not improve survival rates for black women, who not only are more likely to develop aggressive tumors, but also to struggle with delays getting medical care and with life circumstances that make treatment difficult. The task force's new report found, for example, that while follow-up of abnormal breast scans is often delayed, it's especially true for black women. So often when it's a black woman, you hear a narrative you wish you weren't hearing, Dr. Mangione said. Oftentimes, these are women who find a lump themselves or a discharge they know is abnormal, and they go in and they get dismissed. And it's only because they're not willing to accept no for an answer that they are ultimately diagnosed, she said. Up next, the COVID public health emergency is over in the U.S., Here's What That Means for You, by Ariana Rodriguez and Ken Altucker from USA Today. Thursday marked the end of the public health emergency in the United States, more than three years after it was first declared to combat the novel coronavirus by unlocking powerful tools to detect and contain the emerging threat. While it closes a chapter in history, health experts point out the COVID-19 pandemic is not yet over as the virus continues to claim about 1,000 lives each week, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. To date, more than 1.1 million people in the country have died. There's no real mechanism to declare an end to the pandemic, but it is an end to the emergency phase, both in the U.S. and globally, said Crystal Watson, associate professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Variants of the virus continue to appear, causing upticks in hospitalizations and deaths across the country, Watson said. But widespread immunity through infection and vaccines has protected most Americans from developing severe disease. The end of the public health emergency also marks significant changes to the COVID response that could impact testing and treatment, vaccines, data reporting, health coverage, and telemedicine. Here's what that will look like. What's happening with COVID testing? Consumers can still order free home tests through covidtests.gov, but future access might change as the Biden administration has paused buying tests and supply may be limited. Medicaid. Free tests until September 30th, 2024. State Medicaid programs will decide whether to continue coverage after that. Medicare. Enrollees will no longer receive free at-home tests, but lab tests are covered. Private insurers, no longer required to pay for eight home tests a month. Consumers should check with their insurer about continued access, as coverage varies by state and insurance company. Uninsured, testing may be available through pharmacies and community-based sites under a CDC program. We have encouraged a lot of individuals to do over-the-counter testing at home, said Dr. Kaki Iroku Malis, president of the American Academy of Family Physicians. But that's no longer going to be free for many patients, he said. Polymerase chain reaction tests, known as the PCR tests, are considered the gold standard for detecting the COVID-19 virus, health experts say. 
but they may cost up to $100 if not covered by insurance. Jody Guest, professor and vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health, told USA Today. Quest Diagnostics, one of the largest lab companies in the country, said labs will continue to provide COVID-19 services and tests, but access to fees and reimbursement for COVID-19 testing will change after the public health emergency expires. The end of the emergency declaration could impact the nation's ability to test and produce quick results during a surge, Iroku Maliz said. A lack of testing could delay early treatment and cause more patients to seek help from providers, overwhelming the health care system. When a surge happens, that means that the demand is going to be greater for these tests, she said. With this PHE ending, that may be a barrier for a certain number of clinicians to even have the resources available to manage a surge, she said. What's happening with COVID vaccines? Vaccine prices are expected to rise significantly to about $100 a dose, said Brent Ewig, chief policy and government relations officer at the Association of Immunization Managers. But the good news is nine out of 10 Americans now have coverage for vaccines with no cost sharing, he said, partly due to a number of federal programs. Here's what vaccine coverage looks like based on coverage. Medicaid. COVID vaccinations will be covered without a copay or cost sharing through September 30th, 2024. Medicaid will generally cover vaccines that are recommended by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services said. Medicare. Vaccines are covered under Medicare Part B without cost sharing. Private insurers. COVID vaccines recommended by the Immunization Committee are considered a preventative health service and should be fully covered without a copay when using an in-network provider. Uninsured. Free vaccines may be available through the BRIDGE program, announced by HHS in April, which maintains broad access to COVID vaccines and treatment for uninsured Americans. Health experts are concerned the public health emergency may mark an end to continued interest and investment into creating and modifying better vaccines, especially as the demand for the COVID-19 booster remains low. One of the things that allowed Operation Warp Speed to be so successful was that there was a huge potential payoff for manufacturers on the backside of that, said Dr. Mario Ramirez, emergency medicine physician and managing director of Opportunity Labs, a national nonprofit research and consulting firm. We've got to find a way to keep that same financial system in place if we're going to continue to push innovation for whatever the next threat is, he said. Experts are also concerned infrastructure that helped reduce health equity gaps, like relationships with community leaders, may be lost when the public health emergency expires, possibly reversing the unprecedented progress made during the vaccination campaign. It's like you built up a bunch of Navy battleships to go out and win this one battle against COVID, and now we're going to bring them back to port and dismantle them and mothball them, only to have to rebuild them in the next emergency, Ewig said, and it just doesn't make sense, he said. In addition to costs for tests, vaccinations, and treatment shifting to insurers and consumers, about 15 million Americans who gained Medicaid health insurance during the COVID-19 pandemic 
are at risk of losing coverage later this year as generous federal subsidies end. Medicaid is the government's insurance program for low-income and disabled residents. The federal government provided billions in aid to states on the condition that they would not remove people from Medicaid until the public health emergency ends, driving down the uninsured rate to 8 percent. The Biden administration said states can take up to one year to complete eligibility checks for Medicaid. Arkansas, Arizona, Idaho, New Hampshire, and South Dakota began terminating Medicaid coverage last month. Consumers who lose Medicaid coverage can sign up for Affordable Care Act coverage during a special enrollment period. The CDC changes how it reports COVID data. As the public health emergency ends, the CDC will no longer have the legal authority to require all labs to report coronavirus testing results. Some states also will lose their legal authority to collect such case data, said Dr. Brendan Jackson, lead of the CDC's COVID-19 response. Officials said cases have become harder to track as home testing has become so prolific. People with mild or asymptomatic cases who use rapid COVID home tests often don't report results to their doctor or local public health department. That means public health officials don't have accurate case counts. COVID-19 data will now be tracked through hospitals, which must report the number of COVID-positive patients who visit emergency rooms or are admitted to the facility, wastewater monitoring, which the CDC will use to track the virus in hundreds of communities, home to nearly 140 million residents, and labs, which track COVID positivity rates, a measure of how often tests are positive, that is considered a key indicator of the virus's reach in a community. The CDC will rely on voluntary reporting from a network of more than 450 labs nationwide that track respiratory viruses. The public will be able to view the new COVID-19 data tracker and see levels of hospitalization and death in their community. Pandemic rules for telehealth have been extended. Millions of Americans sought remote care through telehealth during the early months of the pandemic when doctors and clinics limited in-person visits. The public health emergency enabled this by easing restrictions that telehealth officials say prevented widespread adoption of the technology. Congress extended those Medicare policies until the end of 2024, which means most Americans will still have access to telehealth services. Up next, pancreatic cancer vaccine shows promise in small trial. Using mRNA tailored to each patient's tumor, the vaccine may have staved off the return of one of the deadliest forms of cancer in half of those who received it by Benjamin Mueller from the New York Times. Five years ago, a small group of cancer scientists meeting at a restaurant in a deconsecrated church hospital in Mainz, Germany, drew up an audacious plan. They would test their novel cancer vaccine against one of the most virulent forms of the disease, a cancer notorious for roaring back even in patients whose tumors had been removed. The vaccine might not stop those relapses, some of the scientists figured, but patients were desperate, and the speed with which the disease, pancreatic cancer, often recurred could work to the scientists' advantage. For better or worse, they would find out soon whether the vaccine helped. 
This week, scientists reported results that defied the long odds. The vaccine provoked an immune response in half of the patients treated, and those people showed no relapse of their cancer during the course of the study, a finding that outside experts described as extremely promising. The study, published in the journal Nature, was a landmark in the years-long movement to make cancer vaccines tailored to the tumors of individual patients. Researchers at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, led by Dr. Vinod Balachandran, extracted patients' tumors and shipped samples of them to Germany. There, scientists at BioNTech, the company that made a highly successful COVID vaccine with Pfizer, analyzed the genetic makeup of certain proteins on the surface of the cancer cells. Using that genetic data, BioNTech scientists then produced personalized vaccines designed to teach each patient's immune system to attack the tumors. Like BioNTech's COVID shots, the cancer vaccines relied on messenger RNA. In this case, the vaccines instructed patient cells to make some of the same proteins found on their excised tumors, potentially provoking an immune response that would come in handy against actual cancer cells. This is the first demonstrable success, and I will call it a success despite the preliminary nature of the study, of an mRNA vaccine in pancreatic cancer, said Dr. Inirbin Mitra, a specialist in the disease at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, who was not involved in the study. By that standard, it's a milestone, he said. The study was small. Only 16 patients, all of them white, were given the vaccine, part of a treatment regimen that also included chemotherapy and a drug intended to keep tumors from evading people's immune responses. And the study could not entirely rule out factors other than the vaccine having contributed to better outcomes in some patients. It's relatively early days, said Dr. Patrick Ott of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Beyond that, cost is a major barrier for these types of vaccines to be more broadly utilized, said Dr. Niha Zaidi, a pancreatic cancer specialist at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. That could potentially create disparities in access. But the simple fact that scientists could create, quality check, and deliver personalized cancer vaccines so quickly, patients began receiving the vaccines intravenously roughly nine weeks after having their tumors removed, was a promising sign, experts said. Since the beginning of the study in December 2019, BioNTech has shortened the process to under six weeks, said Dr. Ugar Sahin, a co-founder of the company, who worked on the study. Eventually, the company intends to be able to make cancer vaccines in four weeks. And since it first began testing the vaccines about a decade ago, BioNTech has lowered the cost from roughly $350,000 per dose to less than $100,000 by automating parts of the production, Dr. Sahin said. A personalized mRNA cancer vaccine developed by Moderna and Merck reduced the risk of relapse in patients who had surgery for melanoma, a type of skin cancer the companies announced last month. But the latest study set the bar higher by targeting pancreatic cancer, which is thought to have fewer of the genetic changes that would make it ripe for vaccine treatments.
In patients who did not appear to respond to the vaccine, the cancer tended to return around 13 months after surgery. Patients who did respond, though, showed no signs of relapse during the roughly 18 months they were tracked. Intriguingly, one patient showed evidence of a vaccine-activated immune response in the liver after an unusual growth developed there. The growth later disappeared in imaging tests. It's anecdotal, but it's nice confirmatory data that the vaccine can get into these other tumor regions, said Dr. Nina Bardwaj, who studies cancer vaccines at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Scientists have struggled for decades to create cancer vaccines, in part because they trained the immune system on proteins found on tumors and normal cells alike. Tailoring vaccines to mutated proteins found only on cancer cells, though, potentially helped provoke stronger immune responses and opened new avenues for treating any cancer patient, said Ira Melman, vice president of cancer immunology at Genentech, which developed the pancreatic cancer vaccine with BioNTech. Just establishing the proof of concept that vaccines in cancer can actually do something after, I don't know, 30 years of failure is probably not a bad thing, Dr. Melman said. We'll start with that, he said. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.